Welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about the pantry staples that people reach for every day to make the foods they love. Today we're kicking off a series on the history, science, and uses of a product which not only defines many culinary traditions, but also defines our class in the rich system of taxonomy. That's right, if you didn't get enough of Mother's Day yesterday, today we're diving deep into milk. We are all considered mammals because we grew up drinking milk. But if that's the case, why are many of us lactose intolerant? And where did cows come from anyway? And are they the only animals that you can milk? We're going to answer all of those questions over the next three weeks as we explore milk, butter, cheese, and everything in between. So grab some kefir, some stilton, or even a stick of butter, and let's get into it. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we are all mammals. This puts us in a diverse family of at least 6,400 species. And what unites us all is the fact that we grew up drinking milk. In fact, the name mammal refers to mammary glands, the glands inside the breast which produce milk. So with that in mind, let's take a step back and explore the breast. In this case, we're looking at the human breast, but most of this applies to all mammals. So we all have breasts, men and women alike, but the female breast performs the important function of providing nutrition for young humans, and it does so in an amazing way. The reason that men have nipples is that we all start off as female in the womb, and it isn't until about nine weeks into the pregnancy that male babies start producing testosterone and growing their boy parts. So at that point, breast development kind of just stops. Now, please bear with me as I dive into this. As I've said before, I am a cook with half an English degree just trying to share as full of a picture as I can of our favorite foods. I put a lot of work into my research and I put a list of sources in the notes, but that doesn't make me an expert in biology, history, anatomy, or anything really. So if you know this stuff better or notice any mistakes, hit me up and I'll issue a correction. Also, I'm a supporter of the idea of gender as a spectrum, but I'm not super well versed in those ideas either, so go shout at me on Instagram if I say something ignorant. That said, the complex milk-producing systems begin developing in the womb, and by the time the baby is born, they have a network of canals to transport milk through the breast already in place. Development really kicks into overdrive when the hormonal car crash of puberty hits us, usually during the teen years. Before pregnancy occurs, supportive tissue, glands, and fat make up a large portion of the breast. The amount of this fat varies mostly by genetics and has no real bearing on a mother's potential to produce milk. Within this fat are milk ducts, and pregnancy causes the number of these ducts and their size to increase. These ducts connect the nipple to the alveoli, which are balloon-like sacs clustered into lobes. Although milk can be produced under specific circumstances outside of pregnancy in both men and women, the slew of hormones, and in this case prolactin associated with pregnancy, cause milk production to really accelerate. And as this happens, the alveoli draw proteins, sugars, and fats from the bloodstream and turn them into milk. Cells surrounding the alveoli then squeeze them, and this milk is pushed into ductules where it's ready for the baby. By the time the baby is born, the exterior of the breast will have gone through some physical changes as well. 
The nipple and areola will likely have darkened to make a clear target for breastfeeding and glands on the areola produce an oil which lubricates and protects the nipple while also killing bacteria on the surface. This is what really got me. Nature's attention to detail can really be amazing sometimes. But in the first few days after the baby is delivered, the breast releases the good stuff. Starting about three or four months into the pregnancy, the body starts producing colostrum, which is a thicker milk far more dense in things like protein, minerals, salt, and vitamins. It also provides antibodies to bolster the immune system and bacteria to get our microbiomes going. And from there, the breast will continue to produce what we're familiar with as milk. It's really an amazing process and a great demonstration of nature's creativity. So many species within our mammalian family use this same method of nourishing their young, and it goes back all the way to the point at which mammals diverged from reptiles and birds around 300 million years ago. But as in many things, we humans are a little weird in that many of us don't stop drinking milk, or at least consuming it in one way or another as we get older. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, civilization popped up independently in a handful of places around the world. Without going too much into it, this was the result of people transitioning from being mostly nomadic hunter-gatherers to sedentary farmers. And pretty much as soon as we started doing this, we'd started domesticating animals. In fact, we had been domesticating animals before agricultural civilization. Every civilization from Mesoamerica to the Indus Valley to the ancient Chinese domesticated animals for a variety of reasons. But different civilizations domesticated different animals. This is naturally because they were limited to what was physically accessible. So let's explore who milked what and why right after this. So milk is a very nutrient-dense drink. It provides protein and a lot of nutrients in a small package. But we weren't supposed to keep drinking it. It wasn't in nature's plan for a bunch of freaky apes to fall so deeply in love with milk that they would be willing to squeeze it out of other animals. Because of this, she only gave us lactase, the enzyme necessary for digesting milk, not to be confused with lactose, the primary sugar in milk, for the first couple of years of our lives. But a few thousand years ago, some populations developed a random genetic mutation which allowed them to produce lactase into adulthood. This mutation provided the great benefit of being able to consume dairy products without difficulty, so it spread throughout these communities. But despite many people still having some level of lactose intolerance, the world consumes an insane amount of milk. According to the United Nations, 6 billion people consume 730 million tons of milk from 260 million cows every year. And somewhere between 750 and 900 million people are estimated to live in dairy farming households. That would mean that around 9% of all of humanity is somehow involved in the production of milk. But not all milk comes from cows. People around the world drink the milks of water buffalo, goat, sheep, camel, donkeys, horses, reindeer, yaks, and many more. So let's step back for a minute and see how different parts of the world have historically gotten their milk. And let's begin that exploration by getting on the same page about continents and how geography has often decided our food choices over time. 
There is honestly no perfect system for dividing Earth's land. It just kind of exists and it moves around constantly, very slowly, but constantly. Now naturally, we humans have broken off into groups and each group has carved out their own space. These lines that we draw on maps are our own construction and they change even more often than the land itself. Sometimes these lines follow the rivers or mountains or other natural borders, but they're mostly just the result of groups of humans saying this is mine now. We have countries and then we have continents, but in order to understand the answer to a question like where does milk come from, with all its complexity and nuance, all of that has to go out the window. So looking at Earth's land as it pertains to this story, we have what we call the supercontinent of Eurasia. Europe and Asia can be traversed without crossing a major body of water. You might have to traverse some deserts or cross over some mountains, but you can do it on foot. And as it pertains to our exploration of milk, so can other animals. Africa is also connected to Eurasia. The Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean limit these connections, but starting around 100,000 years ago, our ancestors started walking from Africa to places around the world. And again, if we can do it on foot, so can many animals. But after we consider Eurasia and Africa, things get a little complicated. All over the world, but especially in Southeast Asia, there are a lot of islands. We humans made it to many of these islands, including modern-day Australia, Papua New Guinea, and the archipelago of Japan, by way of land or ice bridges that used to exist and with the use of early boats. And in the case of these land and ice bridges, the same thing that I mentioned before applies. If we can do it on foot, so can animals, if they want to. Just because land exists doesn't mean that every animal that can will occupy it. We humans just happen to be very curious, and we have a habit of going places we're not supposed to. But once these land and ice bridges receded, we were limited to traveling across large bodies of water exclusively by boat. Some people, like the speakers of the Austronesian family of languages, were very good at this, and they went on to colonize the islands of the Pacific. But when we humans are limited to travel by boat, so are other animals. So unless we brought them along with us, they were stuck wherever they were at the end of the last ice age. But before these physical connections broke off, a few very adventurous, curious, and capable groups of humans made it across the bridge connecting modern-day Alaska to modern-day Russia. But this was long before we were domesticating animals for food. So when these people became the first to make it to what we call the Americas, and when that connection to the old world broke off, they had, with a few exceptions, whatever this land would offer them for the next 15 to 20-ish thousand years. Now, this wasn't exactly a curse. Many of the world's greatest foods came from the Americas pre-Columbus, and people in these regions came up with some amazing food cultures long before the Europeans arrived. But despite being well provided for in their new home, these people were limited in their options for domesticatable animals. Think of all the animals we humans have domesticated, from pigs, cows, chickens, and horses, to cats and dogs, it's a long list, and these animals were key to the success of people across Eurasia and Africa. But there are only a handful of domesticatable animals native to the Americas. The ones I can find are the guinea pig, llama, alpaca, turkey, mink, and skunk. I'm sure there are a lot more, so please forward them to me if you know of any, because I would love to know. 
Now, there's quite a bit of controversy as to why this is, but the prevailing idea seems to be that while humans expanded out of Africa and through Eurasia, this expansion was slow. This meant that animals had a long time to adapt and to get used to the human presence. When people arrived in the Arctic, however, or near Arctic regions, they were trapped by glaciers and other natural barriers for a very long time. And when these barriers finally receded, people occupied the entirety of the Americas really quickly. These adept, effective, and hungry hunter-gatherers are said to have hunted many species to extinction. And again, the people who came to inhabit these areas made excellent use of what was left, but as it pertains to our story today, none were good candidates for milk production. The closest are probably llamas and alpacas, which were domesticated in modern South America by 3500 BCE. These animals are good at carrying things, their meat has been historically important, their fur is very useful, and their manure was key to the success of some of the hunter-gatherer tribes settling into agricultural civilizations. But it takes a long time and a lot of work to get a small amount of milk from these beautiful animals, so they were never really kept for this purpose. Their milk also contains significantly more lactose than other milks, so it's a little harder to digest. And although there weren't any milkable and domesticatable animals in modern North America, the ones that people often ask about are buffalo and bison. Why were they never domesticated? There are a lot of factors that make a wild animal domesticatable. Things like the production of stress hormones and general temperament are important considerations, and bison are far from docile when confined to an area. They can also jump nearly six feet in the air and can carry their up to 3,000 pound bodies at 40 miles an hour. When confined, they've been known to escape or destroy fencing, and they can even charge through razor wire. There has been limited success in the modern era using 6-meter fencing made from welded steel I-beams sunk at least 2 meters into concrete. This is strong enough to stop bison, but also tall enough to prevent them from seeing other lands that they could be grazing. But these are very modern techniques and honestly totally counter to the general native philosophy around food. I'm a big fan of the relationship between native peoples of North and South America and nature especially with the animals around them. In the case of bison, they were hunted, but only as needed and with great respect. I'd love to do an episode on bison someday, so if anyone has resources to do that with respect, please share them with me. But in the meantime, I've linked a page which describes some of this philosophy, as well as how every part of a bison was used, and it's really great reading. But as we move west, away from the Americas, and into the various islands of the Pacific, we see more domesticatable animals, most of which were brought by the settling Polynesian populations. But cows, yaks, camels, and other common milking mammals would be hard to transport by boat, so you often see things like pigs, chickens, and dogs. Pig milk isn't considered viable because of how difficult it is to obtain a very small amount. But continuing west, we do see evidence of milkable animals before the modern period in places like Japan and the Philippines where they were likely introduced by the Chinese. But there isn't evidence of milk in Australia until European settlement. It's when we go a little farther west that we really start to see the vast array of milks and milk products as we touch down in Eurasia and Africa. So rather than continuing this exploration geographically, let's look at the different animals that people get their milk from.
Not too long after people settled to start cultivating crops about 10,000 years ago, we also started breeding animals. Our interests here lie in those from which milk is harvested, but we've used animals for all sorts of things and those will absolutely be featured in future episodes. So goats were likely the first farm animal to be domesticated in the Indus Valley around 10,000 years ago, and goat milk accounts for around 2% of global milk production today. Goats are great for developing nations because they can be kept by individual families and can provide a steady supply of milk. But increasingly, since the latter half of the 20th century, goats have become part of the global dairy market and their products are used worldwide. Goat milk is delicious and it's also used in some of the world's great cheeses. But unlike dairy cows that I grew up seeing in cartoons, goats are happy living pretty much anywhere. And because of that, the largest producers of goat milk are kind of all over the place. They include India, Sudan, Greece, and France. And soon after, goats were domesticated, sheep were as well. And although their milk is valued in many places, they produce less than goats. But like goats, you will be amazed at how many of your favorite fermented milk products, like cheeses, come from sheep. Their milk also contains more protein, vitamin C, and calcium than cow's milk, and is a little sweeter than goat's milk. The top producers of sheep milk are China, Turkey, Greece, Syria, and Romania. Yaks are incredibly beautiful and majestic animals. They were likely domesticated by the ancient Chang people in the Tibetan Plateau around 10,000 years ago. The Chang are an amazing people with a fascinating history and their skill of animal husbandry, including with yaks, likely predates any agricultural civilization. The yak brought great prosperity to these people as they traversed the mountainous regions of Tibet and China. They carried goods, provided milk, and their dung was a useful fuel on the treeless plateau. Nowadays, yak exist in their ancestral homes in and around China, as well as many parts of the Eurasian steppe and beyond. They produce milk that can sometimes come in a pinkish hue if tainted with blood. And this blood-tainted milk is very highly valued in some parts of Tibetan culture. India loves its milk, and it produces more buffalo milk than cow milk. This is the milk of the water buffalo, which takes the prize for the best Latin name, with Bubalus Bubalus. River water buffalo were domesticated in India around 5,000 years ago, and swamp water buffalo were domesticated in China around 4,000 years ago. Buffalo milk is much richer in fat and protein than cow's milk. They also have use in tilling fields, and more people around the world rely directly on water buffalo than any other domesticated animal. But apparently, they don't like being milked, and this contributes to high prices of specialty buffalo milk products. Camels are ideal for producing milk in low-moisture environments with little vegetation for grazing, since they can go long periods without water as they travel between grazing spots. Given that, the top camel milk producers are Somalia, Kenya, Mali, Ethiopia, and Saudi Arabia. And although it is slightly less rich in protein than cow's milk, it has more vitamin C and less lactose, making it easier to digest. A couple of other milks are used in more niche situations. Moose milk, for example, is consumed in the coldest parts of Scandinavia and Russia, where other dairy animals can't survive. And horse milk is often fermented into kumis by people around Central Asia. And that brings us to cow milk. Cows account for 83% of global milk production. As we've seen, this isn't necessarily because cow's milk is the best in every category, it's mostly because they produce the most per animal. According to the USDA, 
cows in the United States produce a whopping 23,000 pounds of milk each on average per year. That means that the 9.3 million cows in the United States alone produced 218 billion pounds of milk in 2019. That's an insane number for a single country. And when you compare that to the 1,800 pounds produced by a single goat, you can see why cows are so valued. This insane level of milk production was made possible by pasteurization. As we will see in products like kefir, kumis, cheese, and a whole lot of others, milk can be fermented into a great many delicious products by taking advantage of the bacteria in and around it. But without proper intentional handling, milk is also the perfect environment for foodborne pathogens. And in the past, if you wanted milk, you had to get it super fresh. Even through the early days of the Industrial Revolution, people kept cows inside of cities so they could have access to fresh milk, and this contributed to the famously terrible sanitation of early industrial centers. Now famously, if you leave wine out for a long enough time, Acetobacter will turn it into vinegar. By the 12th century, Chinese winemakers had learned that heating wine stopped this effect and allowed wine to be kept for longer. They didn't know that the heat killed microscopic bacteria, but it worked and they ran with it. And in 1768, Lazzaro Spallanzani also observed this and used it to preserve a variety of food. And soon after, Nicolas Appert of Paris invented the basis for canning by boiling foods in sealed jars. And building off of this, Louis Pasteur found in 1864 that heating wine for a short period at a more delicate temperature would have this preserving effect without significantly changing the wine. This process of pasteurization would eventually be applied to cow's milk by heating it to 161 degrees Fahrenheit or 63 degrees Celsius for 15 seconds. Ultra-high temperature pasteurization allows milk to be stored, sealed at room temperature for up to 8 weeks as long as it isn't opened. This took cows out of the city and generally made milk more accessible to modern populations. And that's how we have milk at the scale that we do today. This was a bit of a science and history based episode, but the products made from the milks of all the animals we've discussed have amazing stories and cultural interest. So tune in next week as we explore the amazing world of butter and the week after when we look at fermented milk products like cheese. But if I learned anything this week, it's that there's nothing weird about non-cow milks. Even if it's bloody yak milk, it is enjoyed and looked forward to by billions of people every day. So I'm gonna go and seek out some non-cow milk to see if maybe I prefer another. We're all a little different, so I encourage everyone listening to experiment as well. You might find a light connection to somebody else or even a culture through a mutual appreciation of their favorite milk. As always, if anyone has notes, corrections, or ideas for future episodes, reach out to me through the info in the show notes. Also, check me out on Instagram and Patreon where I post some fun extra content. But until next week, try some new milks, or at least think about why others love them, and have a great week.